Well, let's go back in our Bibles to Luke chapter 22. If you have, uh, you have turned away from there, Luke 22. to begin reading in our passage for tonight in verse 24 down to verse 30. We've already read in our scripture reading uh, the earlier passage that sets the table for what we encounter in this passage. Uh, but I want to begin in verse uh, 24, and we'll consider these verses, uh, verses 24 and following. So a dispute also arose among them as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. And he said to them, that being Jesus, the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those in authority over them are called benefactors. But not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest, and the leader as the one who serves. For who is greater, one who reclines at table or one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at table? But... I am among you as the one who serves. You are of those who have stayed with me in my trials. And I assign to you as my father assigned to me a kingdom, that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on, the throne, sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Let's pray together. Our Father, help us please as we consider this passage uh, that it would ring with significance in our ears, and that our hearts would be impacted uh, by what we consider together. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. I have been blessed uh, by this particular passage, and I'll just state up front that this passage is counter-cultural. It stands in opposition of everything we see whether it's uh, in the workforce today, whether it is uh, in the sports we watch and just the society where we live and move and breathe, uh, this passage is so different than the motto of our day. And so I hope tonight that as we consider this passage, that as you think about the world we live in and the air we breathe, and then as you see Jesus teaching and you hold the two uh, up together, that you are convinced by what Jesus has to say and that it takes deep root. Now, it's applicable in, in so many facets of life. Uh, it's applicable uh, not just as you think about ministry in the church with our brothers and sisters of Christ, while it is applicable there, but this is applicable uh, as a father in the home, as a mother in the home, uh, as we consider relationships with, with friends, as you consider how you live out your life in the workplace, this passage just has so much to say about these many, many facets of our lives. So let's, let's look at this passage together, and I, I hope it's an encouragement to us. I did have some bad news that I needed to bring before we get into our passage. Uh, Ellen is here with us tonight. She was going to be voted on to come into membership. Uh, her husband, Dave, is sick. He was always, we were also going to vote on him. I assume we're waiting for him to come. I think we can. Yeah, we can wait for him. Yes. Yeah. So it would be awkward to be the only one standing up here for the right hand of fellowship. So, uh, but pray for Dave. He is, uh, he is sick. I pray that he recovers uh, quickly. 
they were not able to be with us on the uh, October 15th uh, morning meeting that we're having coming up. So we'll find a time here soon to bring, uh, bring them into membership. So if you were looking forward to just getting done with this message so that we could do uh, membership, I apologize in, in advance. Okay. So uh, when you think about greatness, um, what are the kinds of things you think about? Or um, when you think about greatness, um, have you ever been around or in the presence of someone who was great? Now, when I ask that question, your mind immediately goes to uh, maybe celebrities or famous people that you've had a chance to engage with, right? So remember Pastor Curry used to brag about his right hand shook the hand of Ronald Reagan. Uh, in his mind, the greatest president, maybe some of yours as well, the greatest president to ever have lived, right? When we think about greatness, we think about those types of, of people. I've shared the story about a few years ago, I had the opportunity to uh, at a pastor's conference to meet J.D. Drew. Now, that probably does not ring uh, a bell to, to any of you or most of you here, uh, but he was a baseball player who played for the Red Sox, and uh, he was working with a, a, a church to find a pastor, and, and so he was at this pastor's conference, and our seminary professor was there, and he said, guess who's at this conference? And I, I said, I don't know. He said, J.D. Drew. And I said, oh, that is, that is awesome, being a Red Sox fan. I said, uh, Tell him thanks for hitting the Grand Slam against Cleveland in 2007. And then I said this, I think that's the only thing he did that year. And then, uh, then our, our president went to meet J.D. Drew, and he said, hey, one of our grads is here, and he wanted to thank you for the Grand Slam you hit in 2007. And J.D. Drew said, I think that's the only thing I did that year. <laughs> so he recognized that, uh, that as well. So when I got the chance to meet him, I, I didn't bring that up. I wanted to get a, a picture with him, but instead I just you know, played it cool and talked about ministry in his local church, although I really wanted to talk about the Red Sox and what was taking place there. When we think about great people, uh, when we find ourselves in these situations where we're around people that are, 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 are considered great, they're usually measured uh, as being great by some ability that they possess, that through hard work they've, they've cultivated to even greater levels. Maybe they're able to, to hit a ball or uh, play an instrument, uh, or they have the ability to write or speak on a certain topic, and we, we hold and esteem these individuals in awe. It's, it's rare, if ever, that their greatness is attached to their character. That's a more foreign concept in, in our society. And it's not inherently wrong to admire people with great abilities who can play and write and speak. But there's a sense in which our, our definition and our concept of greatness becomes then attached to those kind of skills and abilities. And our idea of greatness becomes more and more detached from the way Jesus describes and defines greatness. So this passage for us tonight is really going really to turn this idea of greatness on its head and hopefully change our thinking as to what it means to be, uh, what it means to be great. But what we'll see in this passage is this, that true greatness is humble service. Now before we get into this passage, let's identify the context in which it's taking place. Okay, so it is Thursday night of the Passion Week. Jesus and his disciples are celebrating the Passover. You'll see this in the verses that just precede this. And, and Jesus has just instituted the first Lord's table, telling his disciples, do this in remembrance of me. 
Uh, it's, a, it's sometimes tough to know the chronology of these days and these hours um, because it's Thursday night and yet Jesus is crucified on Friday and yet it's all still considered Passover. That's because a, a Jewish day began at sundown and it went till sundown the following day. So it's, it's the Passover starting with Jesus and, and the disciples in the evening. And he's, he's crucified on the Passover and he's buried before the Sabbath, which, is, which would have been sundown on Friday. So that's what's taking place and that's when this passage is, uh, is taking place. It's Thursday night of the Passion Week and they're observing the, the Lord's, uh, they're observing the, the Passover. There are a number of discussions that take place. Not every gospel writer uh, unpacks all of the discussions and all of the events in the same way. And that's fine because if you were to go to dinner with somebody and you were to come home and your uh, friend would say, well, what, what, uh, you know, what did you guys discuss at the, at the meal? You, would, you might not give a chronology of how the discussion went or a word for word, but you would, might give different highlights. And that's sort of what takes place in the different accounts of the gospel writers. This particular account and this particular discussion is found... It's found only in the Gospel of Luke, although John records something similar. And what we have before us in this account is a lesson from Jesus about greatness. In fact, it's something of a contrast between true greatness and what we'll call counterfeit greatness. And it's unfortunate, as we'll see, that this discussion is even taking place But it is helpful because we get to sit in and listen and learn as to what Jesus says about greatness. So let's consider four points tonight from this passage as we walk through it together. First of all, notice that the pursuit of counterfeit greatness inevitably means forgetting Jesus. Okay, the the pursuit of counterfeit greatness inevitably means forgetting Jesus. Okay, so the, the the dinner is happening and then an argument breaks out at this at this Passover meal or the the first institution of the Lord's Supper. You'll notice it in verse 24. Look how Luke describes uh, the nature of this dispute. He says, A dispute among them, a dispute arose among them as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. And you're reading that and you're going, Okay, this is not good. Okay, this is anytime, you know, there's a discussion about. Who's going to be the greatest? It's not a good discussion. My boys are often arguing about who won. You know, I won. No, I won. And it's, a, it's an ongoing discussion in our house to the point where I have to make rules sometimes. We don't talk about winning, okay? That's not what Jesus does here, but maybe I should learn from Jesus in these cases. Take time to teach instead of just say, we don't talk about winning. Okay, so it's not a good discussion. And if you're like me, you're wondering why in the world are the disciples having this discussion? And why are they having it right now? at this dinner about who's going to be the greatest. Well, before we're too hard on them, let's understand the the nature of this dispute and the the details surrounding the discussion. Now, Luke doesn't use the word here in verse 24, but we could probably supply a word in this context, okay? A dispute arose among them as to which of them would be regarded as the greatest, and we could probably put these words here, the greatest in the kingdom. They're probably arguing about Who's going to be the greatest in the, in the coming kingdom? Now, why do I say this? Well, the discussion about who would be the greatest in the kingdom was already a discussion uh, in, in other parts of Scripture. In Matthew chapter 20, you'll remember uh, James and John's mother approaches Jesus, and she asks, can my sons sit on your right hand and in your left hand in the kingdom? 
And we shouldn't be too hard on her. She was a, a loving mother who had a, you know, this is a real exalted view of her sons. Okay, what, what mother doesn't, okay? My mom does. It's not a, it's not a very accurate view. But at, at, at any rate, these Jesus' uh, followers were expecting the kingdom to come soon. And they were interested, not rightfully so, but interested in, in who would have the places of prominence in the kingdom. We should also note that the conversation about the coming kingdom is already prominent in this context. So when Jesus is, is uh, observing the, the, the Lord's table with these guys, he's already saying back in verses 15 and 16, he's mentioned the kingdom. And in verse 18, he's mentioned the kingdom. And so the discussion about the kingdom is, is already, in this, uh, already in this context. So at the Last Supper, the disciples are still under the impression that the kingdom is coming soon. Like, okay, yeah, Jesus has talked about his, his coming sufferings, and, and, and yet the disciples haven't understood all that he's said, but they're like, they, in their minds, the kingdom is about to come. Remember a couple days ago, the triumphal entry has already occurred, and so, so they think, they're thinking things are ramping up to this, to, this, uh, to this inauguration of Jesus. But the disciples have terrible timing, don't they? Bring up this discussion. Earlier, when they were discussing their comparative prominence in the kingdom in Matthew and Mark, it was right after Jesus had clearly announced his coming crucifixion. So the discussion goes something like this. Jesus says, I'm going to be crucified and rise again. And the disciples are like, well, can we sit on your right hand and on your left hand? Their their timing is, is never good. Now it's the Last Supper. Jesus is about to be crucified. And again, they're having this conversation about who has prominence in the kingdom. But notice that Jesus is extremely gracious with them. He doesn't say, you guys are such fools. Out of all the guys I could have chosen in the world, I choose this motley crew who are arguing about who's going to be the greatest. And we're grateful for Jesus' patience with them because he takes time to teach them. And if you're like me, you'd rather learn from somebody else's mistake than learn from your own mistake. And so we get to listen in and learn from this mistake that the disciples, the disciples make. And what we notice first is that, that in the pursuit of counterfeit greatness, we inevitably forget about Jesus. So, so notice this. While the disciples are consumed with selfish ambition and self-promotion, they're consumed with who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom, who are they forgetting in this context? Who is the center of this of this meal? Who is the center of this observance? And it's, it's all pointing to the, to the great Passover lamb. Jesus is forgotten in the midst of all of this. And isn't this exactly what happens? This is exactly what happens when, when you and I pursue our own greatness. When we have selfish ambition, when we are consumed with our own agenda, making ourselves great, if we're going to be great, then, then Christ must decrease. Christ always is, is forgotten or decreased when, when we must increase. When it has to be about us, it's never about Christ. Okay, and so when we, understand, we have to understand this first, that, that when we have to be the center of attention, that, that Christ is always forgotten. Because this is, this is natural to us. We want to be seen as impressive, and we often put people down and climb on people's backs to jockey for position and find places of prominence. It shows up in our friendships, our marriages, our work, our church. And every time we do this, Christ is failed 
to be center in our lives. Okay, so when it's all about me, it's not about Christ. Okay, that's our first point. Secondly, notice this. That counterfeit greatness is concerned with position and power. So while the disciples are disputing their comparative greatness, Jesus begins to teach. But you'll notice that in Jesus' teaching, he does not condemn the pursuit of greatness. Okay, they're arguing about who's going to be great, and Jesus doesn't say, guys, there's no such thing as greatness, or greatness doesn't matter. What he does is he redefines greatness for them. Like, it's okay for you to pursue greatness, but let me clarify and, and, and define what greatness is. And the way he does it is, is not by going right into what greatness is, but first he shows us what greatness is not. Okay, so notice verse 25. He gives an example of, of what this counterfeit greatness is. He says, The kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those in authority over them are called benefactors. So Jesus is going to compare true greatness with the world's idea of greatness. And he uses this expression, the kings of the Gentiles, referring to those who are, who are not God's people. And those who are not God's people, they view greatness differently, or they're at least supposed to, than, than those who are followers of, of God. So greatness, according to the world, is about power, it's about influence, it's about position. And then once they obtain the position, Jesus says they like to exercise their lordship over those under them, keeping their subjects under their thumb. He goes on, and the text says that, that they are called benefactors in verse 25. And the phrase here could also be translated that they call themselves benefactors. Well, what is a benefactor? It means a giver of, of good. So, so the way this is, the kings and the Gentiles, they lord it over them, and then they see themselves as the source of, of all good things, and everything good flows from their own authority. They see themselves as, as being great, and their greatness is strictly tied to their position, not their, their character. Now, if we're, if we're not careful, and I think this so easily happens, we can think of greatness according to the world's definition. In fact, when I opened and I asked you, you know, to think of someone who is, who is great or to think of, of the idea of greatness, it was probably likely that your mind moved toward some sort of president or some sort of celebrity or some sort of famous person rather than some faithful brother or sister who is in our midst tonight who has just humbly served without recognition for decades. Right? Because it's so easy for us to think of greatness in terms of the world's idea of position of power, of influence as being tied to greatness. And I think we, like the disciples, need our thinking corrected as to what true greatness is. And so that's what Jesus does for us then in the next section. We see thirdly that true greatness is concerned with humble service. Okay, in verses 26 and 27... Jesus makes his strongest contrast between true greatness and counterfeit greatness. He begins with these words, but not so with you. Now, the you, the word you in this verse, is actually the first word in verse 26. And it's placed emphatically up front. So what Jesus is saying is something like this. The kings of the Gentiles, they view greatness in one way. 
But you, you guys, not so. With you, greatness is to be viewed differently. So Jesus is giving a very personal, face-to-face moment of teaching here with, with these individuals. Hey, guys, guys, with you guys, this has to be different. And, and with Jesus' followers, the thinking on greatness has to be different. The kings of the Gentiles view greatness in one way, but you must, you must have your thinking changed. Now notice that Jesus doesn't rebuke the world. He knows that Jesus rebukes the world's view of greatness, but he doesn't say that leadership should be done away with. He doesn't say, yeah, leadership is abused, so let's just, let's just not have leaders. Instead, he redefines leadership, and he describes it in different terms. Because so this is how the world thinks about leadership, and this is how the world thinks about greatness. But then he says this in verse 26. Let the greatest among you become as the youngest, and the leader as the one who serves. So here Jesus takes the idea of greatness, and he turns it upside down. Rather than the greatness being about power and position, Jesus says it is about humble service. So notice first he says that the greatness should be the greatest should become as the youngest. Now what does he mean by that? Well, in this culture, it, they esteemed age, and the youngest person was the occupied the lowest position. So unlike our homes in our society, where the baby is the the, the star of the family and gets everything, okay, this is, the, this is the flip of that, where they were, the, they were the youngest and they were at the bottom of the pecking order. And Jesus is saying, if you're going to be great, you need to become the least. And you need to assume the lowest rank, or in other words, humble yourself. And this is contrary to how we think, because we think if, if we're going to be great, that we need to aim for the highest positions, and the positions of, of prominence, and, and, and anything less is to fail in our attempt at greatness. But no, Jesus says, if you're going to be great, you need to be humble. Secondly, he says that the leader has to be as the one who serves. So true greatness is, is humbly serving. Now, now, what does it mean to, to serve? Okay? Well, it means to, to invest yourself in, 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 in the good of, of someone else, right? This is, we pick up this idea in, in John chapter 10, verses 45, when Jesus says, I came to, not to be served, but to serve and to give myself, to give, to give my life as a ransom for many. So, so serving, this idea of serving is, is giving of yourself for the benefit of another person. And Jesus says, if you're going to be great, you need to be a servant that is investing your life in the benefit of, of other people. Now, in order to get the disciples thinking, Jesus then moves to asking a rhetorical question in verse 27. Notice verse 27, he says this, and, and this verse can sometimes confuse us at, at times, but let me see if I can make sense of it. Jesus says, for who is greater? One who reclines at table or one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at table? Well, what Jesus is saying here is this. Typically, we're inclined to think that the one being served is more prominent and important than the one serving. And this is usually the case. 
But watch what Jesus says next in this phrase, verse 27. He says, but I am among you as the one who serves. So Jesus was the prominent one, the honored guest in this meal. But the most important one at the table was the one who was serving. He's assuming the position of servant. Well, how, how do we know what Jesus is saying? Well, turn in your Bibles over to John chapter 13. John chapter 13. And I want to highlight a different context where John picks this up in a different light. Okay? So Jesus says, we typically think as the one who is served at the table is the one who's prominent. But here I am as the prominent one serving you. So what does he mean by that, okay, when he says that? Well, notice the context. We're in the same context in John John 13. Look at verse 1. Now, before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. And during the supper, when the devil had already put it in the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, he rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and, taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. Okay, so this is the context where Jesus is teaching on greatness. He is teaching them a lesson about greatness and servanthood. Okay? They are they're partaking of the Last Supper. In these moments, Jesus stands up, takes off his garments, and, and begins to wash their feet. Now keep in mind, in just hours, he's going to be betrayed, and he's going to be crucified. And he's going to carry the weight of sin on his shoulders. And he wants to teach them what humble service is looks like. And Jesus is stooping to the point here to do a disgusting task of washing feet, which was, which was relegated to the position of servants. And you catch this in verse 6 with Peter's response, Lord, do you wash my feet? Like, you shouldn't be doing this because you're the great one. You're the teacher. You're the Lord. You shouldn't be occupying this position. Well, notice as the passage continues in verses 12 through 17, we see this. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, Do you understand what I have done? He says, verse 13, You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If then your Lord and teacher have washed your feet, You also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. Okay, so Jesus says, you call me Lord and teacher, These are titles of of prominence, and and you're right to address me in this way. But Jesus says, if the person in the honor position can't humbly serve, then you're not above service either. The servant is not greater than his master. That is this. We never come to the place in our life 
where we are more prominent than Jesus. So if Jesus could serve in meaningless tasks, we are not above Jesus. And if Jesus could give his life to serve many, we are not above our master to give our lives in service for one another. So Jesus gives an example and a teaching moment here to show us what true greatness looks like. Now, let's go back to Luke 22. But in going back to Luke 22, let me highlight this point. It's helpful to clarify here what Jesus is not saying. Okay, now listen carefully to this. Jesus is not saying, if you want to climb the ladder to greatness, then you need to start by being a servant. Then eventually, when you have have gotten to the place where you've climbed high enough that you don't have to serve anymore and you can be served. Okay, that, that's not what Jesus is saying. That's not his point at all. That would be to mix sort of a true greatness with counterfeit greatness and, and have a confused definition. Okay? We think greatness is about power and prestige. And in order to get there, we have to start with the lowly positions. But, but this isn't Jesus' point. Jesus does not say that humble service is the path to greatness. Jesus says, humble service is greatness. There's a big difference. That no matter how high we climb in in any position, we never rise above being mere servants. Now, our tasks might change with the positions we occupy, but we never rise higher than a servant, no matter how high we rise. And if we miss this, then we miss the meaning of true greatness. Now let's move to our last point. As we pursue true greatness, we leave the results to God. Okay, we, relieve, we leave the results to God. Look at verses 28 back in, I told you to go back to Luke 22, but I'm still in John 13, so give me a moment here to get back to Luke 22. And look at verses 28 and 30 as this discussion finishes. Jesus says, You are of those who have stayed with me in my trials. And I assign to you, as my Father assigned to me, a kingdom that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Now, what, what is Jesus saying here? Well, once again, the discussion about the kingdom shows up in this passage. And while correcting their misconception of greatness, Jesus does confirm that, that their expectation of a coming kingdom. They thought it would be sooner, but it was going to be later. But Jesus does affirm that the kingdom is coming. And Jesus affirms this, that in the kingdom, these guys are going to have a prominent place. You notice in verse 28, it says that an honored place in the kingdom is for them who have stayed with him in his trials. And, and probably contrary to Judas who didn't, and, and, and talk about the trials that he, he, has, he has occupied prior to these events. Because in, in a few moments they're going to betray him, but eventually they do, they do stay with Jesus, and they have stayed with Jesus up until this point. And Jesus says, just as the Father has assigned Jesus a kingdom, he's going to assign the disciples a prominent place in the kingdom, that they will eat and drink at his table in the kingdom. This harkens back to verse 16. And, and then he also says that they're going to sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. That is to say this, 
that when the kingdom comes at Christ's second coming, and Jesus restores the kingdom with Israel as he promised in the covenants of the Old Testament, that the disciples are going to occupy a place of honor. Now there's a a parallel passage to this one, not parallel in terms of context, but parallel in terms of meaning. And it's, it's found in Matthew chapter 19. You don't have to turn there. But it's the account of the, the rich young ruler. And he asks Jesus, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And by the end of you remember Jesus' answer, sell all your possessions and, and follow me. And, and by the end of it, the discussion becomes evident that the young man would, would not come to Christ because he loved his possessions and, and his life too much. But in that discussion, it, it got the disciples thinking. And Peter asks Jesus a question after this encounter with the rich young ruler. He says, Master, we have left everything and have followed you. What then will we have? And you think it's going to be one of those moments where Peter opens his mouth and shouldn't have opened his mouth. And you expect Jesus to rebuke him. But that's not what we find in in Matthew 19. Jesus actually answers a sincere question by Peter about what he will have in eternity for following Christ. And Jesus says this in Matthew 19, 28. Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, in the new world, okay, that's the word regeneration. It's only used two times in all of Scripture. It's used in Titus 2 to talk about, or Titus 3 to talk about personal regeneration. This is talking about cosmic regeneration. In the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, i.e. the kingdom. You who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Again, confirming that the apostles will have a prominent place in the coming kingdom. But Jesus doesn't stop there. He goes on to say in Matthew 19, verses 29 and 30, And everyone who has left houses or brothers, or sisters or fathers or mothers or children or lands, for my name's sake, will receive a hundredfold, And will inherit eternal life. But many who are first, in this context the rich young ruler, will be last. And the last, well those who have followed Christ in selfless service, will be first. In other words, God blesses those who give their lives in service to him. So, what we have here, and the point that I just highlighted is that as we pursue true greatness, we leave the results to God. Okay? Jesus doesn't, Jesus doesn't always specify, or God doesn't always specify what we will receive because of, of living as humble servants for him. But we do have these words from Peter. He says, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you. Now, do we know what the proper time is? No. We know that, that it's left in the hands of the Lord to do with us and, and give the results as, as he so pleases. But we are promised that if we pursue greatness as humble servants, that God will reward for faithful service. And so we serve, and we leave the results to God. This is humble service. True greatness is humble service. Now, this teaching by Jesus, as I said, it's applicable in the church. 
brothers and sisters in Christ and things that we do. But man, is it applicable in just every facet of our lives that we serve one another. So it's friendships or marriages or parenting or, or church or work or wherever. This is how we have to think about greatness. It's the person who humbly serves and invests in other people. May God use this passage to, to change our thinking and to move us forward as, as humble servants of his. Let's pray together. Father, easy words to understand, incredibly difficult words to apply and practice. So we ask for the help of your spirit in our hearts so that we might be like Jesus and serve humbly and faithfully one another. At the same time, raging in our hearts is the desire for prominence and recognition and honor. Those are all temptations from Satan that are feed on our selfish ambition. So Lord, let us pursue the path of greatness, which is humble service of you and others. And may your name be exalted because of how we live in obedience to this passage. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, I trust these words are an encouragement to you tonight, and uh, thank you for joining us. Uh, God bless.